anarchists, violent mobs, arsonists, looters, criminals, rioters. Poor kids are just as bright and just as tall as white kids. I said, please don't be too nice. We choose truth over facts. I am your president of law and order. We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men and women created by the go, you know the you know the thing. <laughs> All right, let's let's get into it. Uh, this is Inside Agitator, I think, episode. Now it's forty-seven, right? Wow. All right, cool. So um, we thought it was forty-seven on an earlier episode, but now it's officially forty-seven. Um, we um, have a super special guest today. This is this is one of the bigger guests that we've had on the show. I'm sure some of you recognize him from Twitter as Fred uh, Nitsky. Is that how? How should I say? Perfect. Yeah. There you go. And um, but uh, we have on us here Ted Matrakis from the Daily Dialectic on Substack. You guys can go subscribe there. He does a podcast, some good writing. Um, I DM'd him about one of his tweets about COVID um, that I thought was really insightful. But then we on our Instagram posted something on Sunday about Jesus. And um, I listened to your podcast, the most recent episode of Daily Dialectic, and I thought that you had some really good insights on um, Jesus and, you know, kind of being a truth teller and him and Socrates, they were both executed for that. And so actually, if you don't mind, before we get into the COVID stuff we plan on talking about, would you mind talking a little bit about uh, Jesus with us? A little Jesus talk? Yeah. Oh, absolutely, man. All right. I'm glad, I'm glad you, well, first of all, thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. Um and I'm glad you are. We're enjoying the Jesus phase, the very intense Jesus phase that I went through <laughs> for the last couple of weeks. Um, I don't know. It seemed like the right thing for personal reasons, you know. Yeah. And I don't know. I just started. <laughs> I'm I'm recently 34, and that's right around the Jesus age. So you know, it's I guess guys in their early 30s tend to think that they're Jesus sometimes. So that's part of where it's coming from um part of guys of all ages Uh, i sometimes think i'm god yeah and part of it is like this very cynical strategy i'm developing to try to like develop a theory of jesus that kanye would appreciate and so like i can become his personal pastor or something this is so funny that you say this because i'd literally do a bit about how i want to be like kanye's guy where you know he could say his political ramblings and i'll be like all right what he really means is, <laughs> man. Yeah, that's so that's too funny. You say that, man. Okay, so you're my competition. Mid-class. Yep, exactly. We're in the same job market, pal. Yeah, whoever has the best Jesus to sell will win. Um, <laughs> and then you can just get money forever from Kanye. Well, do you want to hear my version of Jesus that people were pretty pissed about? Uh, yeah. So I put up a tweet. Um, and this is from uh, Brie Brie Simps on Twitter, Brianna. And she said, Jesus was a brown socialist and femi- feminist refugee from Palestine that was born into poverty and killed at the hands of the state. Happy Easter. Mm-hmm. And I put this up. And our posts don't normally get the most promo we'll ever do is hashtags at the end of a post. And I made the mistake of doing hashtag Happy Easter. <laughs> so the, the Christians found me. 
Um, and and they really weren't thrilled with what I had to say about Jesus there. But before I read some of the funny comments, I can we we could just talk about. It. Do you agree with that interpretation? Is it too simplistic? Is it too reductive? Is it too modern day? Or is it is it about right? Yeah, I don't know. It it's kind of been said. It's like a typical woke interpretation, I guess. And I, I think it's what I said to my parents at like thirteen, fourteen when I was first getting into atheism. You know, exactly. Yeah, it's like an epic sort of epicone kind of take and i don't know i guess that's okay and those takes do very well on social media they do very well yes seems like like oh wow that's something different like if you don't really think about it much and that's yeah. sort of the thinking that goes on on social media but yeah it's it's not really that interesting or different i don't know and my theory of jesus or idea of jesus i've been developing <laughs> in my laboratory yes isn't like woke at all it's sort of like an anti-woke jesus interesting think about christianity so much or like the resurrection or ascension or anything like that i think of him just as like jesus the guy as a material as a revolutionary and kind of as a misanthrope Mm. Um, that's how i've been understanding jesus lately and maybe it's just i'm projecting this onto jesus that's what some people have told me and you know that's fine um but I think that's sort of what Jesus is there for. Like he sacrificed himself so like he can be whatever we want him to be, you know, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. like that's why he's there sort of. Um, and the main gospel that I am thinking about is the gospel of Mark because it's the shortest, which is cool. Yeah. Um, it's the most materialist. I feel like it's, it's the least divine. Uh, and he seems very pissed off throughout the whole thing. Yeah. Um, and Mark was, I think the, first gospel that was written so maybe it's the most accurate um yeah yeah yeah. as time went on because my take was always he probably was a pretty radical guy and then when all the all the squares got their hands on the material it kind of you know a lot of that got wrung out and you could see the yeah you could see the peaks of it you could see the little crumbs of him being a ra- intense radical and like you said even an angry guy oh yeah <clears throat> but for sure ultimately yeah. over time it got you know it got it turned into a slave religion really exactly yeah it's all about love and peace and i don't think that's really what jesus was all about um Mm -hmm. he you know the way i understand it he kind of hated people because they were always bothering him to do miracles all the time and he didn't (laughs) want to like it's tiring to cut it it like drains him to do miracles it's not like an easy thing to do you know and people think like oh do the fucking miracle do the you know it's like if you're a comedian people come up to you like oh do the bit do the bit um and it's just it's very draining and annoying that's sort mm-hmm. of how i jesus um and yeah after he does a miracle he always tells people don't fucking like tell anyone about this because it's going to be a really bad thing for me if word gets out and they always tell everyone and so he just gets like progressively more disillusioned and miserable as the gospel of mark at least goes on um and to me the critical moment is in the garden of gethsemane where uh he brings his closest friends, the disciples, and he's like, wait here, I'm going to go pray. Um, and like, stay awake and make sure you don't fall asleep. And then he goes and prays for, I think, an hour, and then he comes back and they're all asleep. And he gets super pissed off. He's like, even my closest friends can't do one fucking simple thing for me. They can't stay awake for an hour for me. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then after that point, I feel like he's like, okay, my best friends are shit. The people I did miracles for are shit. Um, and he wasn't close to his family at all either. Like there's this part in the gospel of Mark where, um, the fiddler, his mother and brothers come into this crowded house where he's doing miracles 
and they try to get in and he's like that's not my family my family are the people who are in here listening to my teaching like that's not my fucking family so he was really disconnected from everything um and he like you know sort of liked the people who followed him and the people who appreciated his teachings but he was a very disconnected guy from life and i actually really like that casting um and i actually think that kind of fits into you know a more radical view of the guy because that 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 checks out that he would have been a very troubled and a very um isolated and i mean he's the son of fucking god you know of course you're going to be isolated and alienated from human yeah and that's an aspect that totally i think gets uh yeah just not really not really looked at totally yeah and there's this great part in the gospel of mark about uh where he goes back to his hometown of nazareth and he can't do any miracles there he can't like he tries to preach his message and whatever but the people don't have any faith because they're just like oh that's jesus he's the fucking weird carpenter his mom's mary he lived up the street um and so they don't believe in him at all and it's just very awkward and he hates it Mm -hmm. Um, and so like that's sort of to me why he left initially and like went wandering off because the people in his hometown you know didn't understand him didn't appreciate him and yeah his miracle power his ability to work magic didn't work there because it just wasn't it wasn't right i don't know so like if you want to do real shit that you know how to do you gotta go off and find people who don't know you i guess because you know your family and friends people you grow up with they'll always have this one idea of you that yes and a big part of jesus is about you know breaking away from that um so he says (laughs) i'm reading scripture now a prophet will always be held in honor except in his hometown and among his kinsmen and family. Hmm. I love uh, that. I love that yeah. so much. What's your what's your take on that, um, my co-host here? Uh, I, I'm sure you find that really interesting. Yeah, no, that is very interesting because all, all my life, you know, I've, I grew up in the church, so, like, I've never really heard this side of uh, <laughs> or this story, you know, so and and so much the church is focused on reinforcing the family, not even uh, investigating how one might have to break away from that to find any type of uh, meaning and purpose. I mean that that's really that's really um, that is yeah wow, and especially if you're going to be a figure like Jesus um, who's going against these things, yeah, and naturally um, you're going to be in conflict with. Uh, your beginnings. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's wow. I'm enthralled by this conversation. I'm so glad I asked you about Jesus. This is awesome. (laughs) (laughs) You were ready. I I really, I swear to God to the listeners, we did not pre, I did not give him a heads up that this was the topic. Yeah. This is, Oh, I got Jesus pills locked and loaded. Let's go. That's really good. On the uh, on the last episode, we talked about, um, or two episodes ago, it'll be when this comes out. Um, we were talking about No Name, who I'm not sure if you're familiar with, uh, kind of the yeah. drama with her on Twitter lately. Um, and we ultimately got to talking um, about black spaces, and my co-host was talking about how really the only time, uh, growing up in rural North Carolina, the only time he felt that he was in a black space was really the church. Um, and then we we, we kind of ended up spending a good portion of the episode investigating how much of that space is really truly off. Can you authentically be yourself in it? 
how much of it is uh, taken over by kind of these wider um, kind of imperialist is the right word, but uh, kind of uh, what did they do? Um, colonizer religion, yeah, yeah. Um, and 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 then kind of ultimately getting into how even though that's the case, black churches have still been a hotbed for radical political action. Um, even through to today. Um, and in spite of kind of these, you know, these, it, it being hijacked or co-opted, um, even from immediately after Jesus's death, it still has retained some of that uh, radical fervor that, you know, it, it started with. Um, so yeah, I'd be interested to get your take on that and how the modern day church kind of fits into that, that view of Jesus as like an angry guy who was, who was, you know, not, not satisfied with things and maybe not uh, all hunky dory. Let's, uh, let's sing Kumbaya. Yeah, for sure. And I think this is where like the materialist part of it comes into it for me, um, where like it ends with his death. And that's it. Like, there's no heaven or beyond or promised land or he's not coming back. I mean, that's obviously a big part of Christianity. But I sort of leave that out in the way I think about it, because I think it's more interesting and more revolutionary and more materialist and, I don't know, more useful, I guess. Um, and, yeah, this idea of, like, waiting for Christ to come back or, like, waiting for life to get good once you go to heaven, like, to me, that's not useful. And Christianity became, as you said earlier, a slave religion. It became about being meek and, like, loving your enemy or whatever. But more than that, it's about, like, waiting for the promised land, for, like, eventually we'll get there. You know, Martin mm -hmm. Luther King comes out of the Christian tradition, um, and he's all about, I have a dream that, like, eventually shit will get better. And so Christianity became all about, like, eventually. And so we can tolerate shittiness in this life because heaven will be great. Mm -hmm. And to me, that misses the urgency of Jesus because he was only preaching for like two years, I think, or three years. Like he got baptized by John the Baptist when he was like 30 or 31. And then he was dead when he was 32. So it was like constant, urgent shit he was doing for those two years. There was no yeah. like waiting or like, oh, I hope this works or whatever. It was just like, I'm a fucking crazy revolutionary. I'm barely going to sleep or eat or whatever. I'm just going to do my mission. And he didn't, yeah, I'm out here spreading the gospel. Yeah. yeah. And he didn't even really know what his mission was, I didn't think. Like, he was always kind of confused, but he knew that he had to do it. And he didn't know where it was going to lead. He didn't know where it was starting. So to me, it's like always in process. It's in motion. Um, and I think that's important for Marxists to get rid of this idea of teleology, which is a fancy philosophy word meaning like, an end goal or final aim or something. Yes. And Marxists often think like, oh, like there's there's this teleology towards communism and it's just going to happen and communism and capitalism will fail and we'll get to the promised land sort of. Um, yes, yes. And so Marxism can become religious in that way. And so I think yeah. rid of that aspect of Christianity makes the figure of Jesus a little more useful for Marxist revolutionaries, I think. I think it's instructive even on a deep interpersonal level, obviously the Marxist level, and I want to talk about that a little bit, but but even just, I think in general, there's this notion that 
you need to know what your mission is. You need to know where you're going. You need to have a plan, especially under late capitalism, that there has to be, you know, you look at the, the, the failed or let's say um, our less liked socialist brothers and sisters, quote unquote, uh, the Warrenites, the Voshites, they're all very into, we need to have better plans. We need to, we right. need to plan better. Um, and, I, and Joker in the dark Knight, like Gordon had plans. Like Joker hates plans. Yeah. 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 And, and the joke, we, we need the Joker right now. Um, is I oh, think, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and you know, what's funny. I think it's instructive cause yeah, totally that there is urgency to it. Um, but, but on top of that, I think the reason I don't call myself a Marxist is because of what you just described that I didn't even really have the words for, but there's kind of this idea that, you know, Marx uh, almost as a Messiah figure knows that for sure capitalism will naturally lead to uh, something better or something different when I, I don't think he really could have at the time he lived had the foresight to see the kind of worse incarnation of it that we keep getting a year after year after year and the days keep coming and they don't stop coming and they don't stop coming and now we're getting like automated amazon checkouts where you know they're monitoring your every move and you don't have to check out with a real person like you know and, and it's every every day and that was just this morning what i saw so like every day we just you know we keep getting further and further away um and it just feels like yeah it's uh yeah it feels urgent <laughs> right yeah like the the future has to be ripped out of the present like it's here right now and we have to see it and grab it we can't yeah. necessarily yeah and and i think um it you know all the troubles that have would have come from like i think what marx anticipates is kind of the the riffraff that we've already seen and and, and the kind of the, the trouble to the system that we've already seen in 2016 and, and through now and with Trump and Q and the left and this, that, and the third. And, and that didn't turn into what it would have maybe in the 20th century revolutionary action. It turned into like a lot of online shitposting and this, that, and the third. And like, obviously we could like hash that out all day. But like, I think what the key thing to look at is like, it didn't turn the trouble kind of didn't turn into revolutionary action what we're getting is a more controlled worse reincarnation of capitalism that like is more authoritarian and is just getting worse like you know under biden right now and this is something that we called on this podcast he's now giving more military surplus to the police state so we're really like not even seeing capitalism eat itself alive it's reinforcing itself and yeah, sure, people are getting more discontent with it, but it seems all that's really leading to is a discontent person here or there, sometimes almost seeming in a controlled way, lashing out in, in these big events that then, like, one six, that almost seem, you know, cue, there's so much fishy there, and that almost seem like it is done in a way to... Um, yeah, put an end to though to to prevent the the fall of capitalism, and it really instead of eating itself alive, it's reinforcing itself. So I think Marx was entirely kind of wrong about what would happen, or at least didn't foresee like how you know ready and prepared for the for the issues of capitalism the capitalists would be in you know the U.S. empire. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, like Marx didn't necessarily view himself as a fortune teller so he's but people do you know but what but people often do you know which is oh, kind of yeah 
I think that's kind of a mistreatment of Marx to like treat him as if he was making these predictions. And I don't think he necessarily was. Um, But yeah, I mean, the bourgeoisie in capital is endlessly uh, flexible and it can adapt to everything. Um, And I think that ability we're still dealing with, obviously, Um, like everything can be co-opted. The language of justice, even the language of economic justice, which you would think is the one thing that the bourgeoisie couldn't like take over and use to their own ends. Mm -hmm. Like they're talking like Andrew Yang is running for mayor of New York City. He talks about like a human centered economy or whatever. Yes, yes. Marxist. He's not anti-capitalist. He's like trying to bring some kind of humanism into capitalist economics. I'm a. uh, before we before we move on, I'm really interested in in, in interrogating that. I, I, so we've often talked about Yang, and um, you know, I think you're spot on that it, it's it's using the language to accomplish something completely different. Um, and when you first brought up the example of like co-opting economic language, I was almost thinking of like how in the student debt conversation they use kind of class resentment to be like, ah, oh, well, you don't want Harvard lawyers to get their student debt paid. Um, and maybe that's an example, too. But I wasn't even thinking about it in terms of how you do have these candidates that have this uh, a pay, what would seem to be full-throated support for economic justice. But in reality, um, I think especially in the case of Yang, who is, you know, his background shady, but he's like a venture capitalist. You know, he's like a oh, yeah. he's a, he I think is a smart guy who can see the winds of where things are going for guys like him and how people feel about them. And like you said, he's trying to last minute, I think, you know, inject some humanism into it. Cause, and, and I think, you know, he knows that it's a politically savvy. There's this rising burgeoning movement of people who um, don't necessarily want to embrace the answers that guys like us have for them because they're scary answers, but, but do see the flaws and the issues um, and aren't exactly Q-pilled either. Um, and, and I think, you know, there's a big demographic for um, him. I, I do. We do think we, we don't think he's going to win in New York, though. I think he's already botched that. I think the polls are bullshit. The polls are rigged. Yeah, <laughs> he's fucking up too much. Like, <laughs> yeah, 7-Eleven is not a bodega man. Like, <laughs> yeah, 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 maybe. I don't know. Like, who's going to beat him, though? Who's running against them? Like, well, hear about or at least that well, I hear about because I'm just, no, it's I'm true. Afraid. It's true. And um the Cuomo thing uh, definitely has has shot him up uh, extraordinarily. I don't know who the centrist opposition is, and you know what? Maybe that's a sign that uh, he will he will certainly uh, be able to win. But uh, but I'm really not sure. I think um, right off the bat too, he said he just said some weird things about like you know I couldn't. We, we, me and my wife left New York because imagine trying to do work and do Zoom class with your children in a two bedroom apartment. And it was like, yeah, like most New Yorkers. And then uh, the, the New York Post is all over him because he's like anti-circumcision, like not even politically, I don't think, just like as a principle. And uh, and they're like anti-Semite, Andrew Yang. And I think that's why he, uh, the left is really critical of him for going after BDS. But I think his going after BDS was an overcorrection for for them trying to call him an anti-Semite. So he's like, "Yeah, no, the Palestinians are the racists." Like, you know, like, yeah, that fuck that man. If someone calls you an anti-Semite for bullshit reasons, you just have to double down. Exactly. 
Exactly. Um, and, and you can apply that to the Bernie campaign a million times too, where they embraced kind of accusations and yeah, yeah it's, it's you, know. you know, so don't answer it with good faith. They're just yes. trying to fuck with you. So fuck with them back. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and, and that just seems like such common sense. And I wish that that was the operating manual of just everybody. Cause I think we'd be a lot farther if we didn't engage with the bad faith, like it was, uh, like it was in good faith. Um, yeah. yeah. So Yang is, I don't know. I, I see him as not too different from like, there was this thing, the great reset. Did you hear about that? Okay. I'm familiar, but, um, my yeah. co-host, like the World Economic Forum or the World Bank, one of those big like capitalist economic global things that like make all these weird decisions for us. They had this thing, I guess, in the fall uh, where they announced like it's a great reset because they're acknowledging that capitalism has not worked for the mass of people in the world. Mm-hmm. They're in the name. They're not like changing. They're not like abolishing or dismantling capitalism they're They're turning it off and on again yeah (laughs) Yeah, exactly (laughs) like like it's a fucking video game or something yeah yeah Yeah. and so you sometimes hear people in the you know liberal media and political classes talk about uh changing from shareholder capitalism to something they call stakeholder capitalism Mm -hmm. yes i have heard this um i haven't i'm not too familiar with this so You'd think it's a step in between how it is now in a worker co-op, but it's really like maybe like half an inch toward that. Yeah, exactly. It sounds like it's something different and some kind of change, but it's really not. It's just kind of like going around circles and it seems like different things are happening, but it's not really. So shareholder capitalism is just capitalism where, you know, uh, big businesses are, are run just to give their major shareholders bigger quarterly dividend checks and the workers who produce all of the value for the company they they get no say in anything their total afterthoughts all that matters is you know bigger checks for the major shareholders right that's share that's that's just capitalism yeah but Mm -hmm. they're shareholder capitalism and so they want to replace that with what they call stakeholder capitalism and you hear a lot of these woke liberals and whatever talking about this. And I think this is kind of the tradition that Andrew Yang is coming out of with his human-centered capitalism or whatever, or economics. Um, yeah. And so stakeholder capitalism is anyone who has a stake in what's going on. So like anyone in the community that a capitalist corporation exists in. Um, but they, they expand it out to like everyone on planet Earth is a stakeholder. For, for like you know uh environmental justice reasons to fight climate change and whatever and so it's this sort of fake solidarity that like we're all stakeholders in the you know um yeah doesn't matter if your stake is point zero 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 one two eight you're still you're still that's all our show so you know you better work just as hard on those crops those are yours too pal yeah, yeah. So it's this like fake collectivism, fake solidarity. Uh, the uh, the CEO of Salesforce.com, Mark Benioff, you know, mm-hmm. he's mm-hmm. I guess he's got I don't know five or six billion dollars probably, um, but he's one of the leading proponents of this. And he had an op-ed in the, in the New York Times like last year, two years ago. Time is all a blur for me now. Yeah, um, yeah. Like this all out, and he was like, "It's capitalism 2.0. We're resetting." <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. And you know what's sad is um, we just did an episode on Bausch, and there's this tendency on the left and on this newer left that I believe is like partially astroturfed by you know uh, 
you know, purposeful sheepdoggers with a certain political agenda. But there's these this group of younger kids online and on Twitch, especially in Twitter, that really, I think, um, maybe didn't even vote in these elections, but obviously because the stakes are high, I've been paying attention. Um, and they are leftist, but I think um, just maybe because they're young and impressionable, a lot of them. And I think that's lost in the conversation is that a lot of these kids are like, 15 and 16 and like i was like probably still identifying as a libertarian then so like they're at least ahead of where most of us were but like but these kids um they'll really get on i think their analysis of leftism is not really to analyze the power structures and the things that stood in our way or even really talk too much about how like the primary was fixed in this that and the third because then you're a crazy bernie bro but these people who do not at all identify with the woke liberals, do not at all identify with the MSNBC crowd, this younger kind of rebellious group, but that do want to be on the left without kind of really those difficult analysis of power type things that you have to come to, they all kind of believe that like what we need to do is just be a little more polite, plan a little better, as the left do a little a little less of that and, and a little, uh, and just kind of, and what was the exact example that you were talking about? Do you remember? Me? Yeah. Example of? Whatever Whatever. I just jumped off of, the, whatever it is you were just talking about, if you can remember. I always lose my train of thought when I, talk, when I jump around like this. Yeah, oh, it's, it's hard. Um, I don't know. Like, what you were just saying about how that whole Vouch set of younger people who are into leftism uh they're into plans and like being very smart like i guess that's Vouch's thing he's being like, very smart yeah, yeah. Or, trying, yeah. or trying to sound smart for the sake of it exactly and being nice sort of yeah. so it's about being smart and nice and that's mm -hmm. what leftism sort of has morphed into now i guess but mm -hmm. that really isn't what it's about i don't think like you don't have to be a fucking genius to be a leftist or to be a marxist it's, yeah be a very common sense thing um, yeah. like the word communism or, or no uh common sense comes from a latin <laughs> census communis so like yeah communism is almost in the word common sense or the phrase common sense. <laughs> yeah yeah you know? so like it's weird that they're all like vouch and like I, I know nothing about him but i guess his thing is like oh i have a high iq or whatever um totally he's a less ben shapiro really like exactly yeah yeah Ugh. god horrible um and so that shouldn't be what the left or marxism or whatever is all about um like all of that shit was written for like workers who only had like you know a few minutes a day after their horrible 12-hour shift at the factory to read a couple things like that's who marx was writing for really yeah yeah uh and so it should be talked about in that kind of common sense way um and yeah it's not about being nice either um because it's fundamentally about smashing the current the status quo and you're not going to do that by being friendly so it seems wrong on those two levels about like fetishizing you know being smart in this very like superficial technical ben shapiro-y way mm -hmm. um and about being like fakely nice or performatively nice like like you mentioned niceness being part of that like i guess that's part of 100 percent, yeah and i think in and even you know especially on the the warrenite left or even in the more the more centrist people that the Vashites don't identify with 
I think that's the big similarity is that the, the common criticism that you'll get from both sides of that is, well, all right, that's not the right way to go about that. Like, <laughs> if, you know, you get more, catch more f f uh, bees with honey or like whatever, you know, and it's, uh, and it's, 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 yeah, it's completely flawed when right now I think we're, it's so clear we're at a point where we need to actually be antagonistic to the system and put pressure on it. Um, yeah. Well, it's, it's funny that you mentioned catching flies or bees with honey. Um, because there's this great line from Proudhon, the socialist uh, philosopher that Marx knew and sort of uh, clashed with. But Proudhon is very interesting, I think. He wasn't right about everything, but he has this line that, like, you know, you may catch more flies with honey than vinegar, but the point is not to catch the fly. The point is to kill it. <laughs> that's, uh, wow. That's, that's pretty, that's pretty, uh, and you know, it's so funny. If, if there's any, uh, there's any credence to, you got to read theory. It's because guys like this already figured all this shit out. That is too fucking funny. That... Yeah. <laughs> Wow, that that's and it's so funny how that ties exactly back into what we were talking about with Jesus. Is that you know, yeah, it's 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 not, um, and I th and I guess there is just this human tendency, um, whether it's with Jesus or with politics, to to want to uh, be less antagonistic. And and I guess it makes sense. The guy got crucified. Yeah. Mm hmm. Damn, I think you even see that nowadays with like. What was that guy who, um, over the summer, who shot uh, the right wing protester, and then like a couple of days later, like they basically just executed him? Michael Renal. Yeah, my, yeah, yeah. Um, and then Trump bragged about it on TV. Yeah. Um, and I'd love to get your take on this, um, Ted, just as like a, a resident Twitter guy. I feel like in the, in the past year, Twitter has basically just become like overrun with bots and CIA talking points and just like. <laughs> astroturfed actor like it just does not feel like what it once was and i literally was in um i was in a thread talking about this michael renal guy and how he definitely was murdered by the police and it was an article that said that they literally couldn't find the bullet he supposedly shot at the police and that he somehow put his gun in his back pocket before getting shot and i don't know about you but i probably wouldn't shoot one round off at the police and then put the gun in my back pocket you know you either commit or you don't commit that that doesn't seem like what i'd do in that situation personally if i was surrounded but you know nevertheless so it, it seems pretty clear that you know and i mean the real evidence is that trump went on tv and was like i told him not to arrest him <laughs> you know um and like literally openly bragged about it um but i literally had a guy replying to me and is like and was and you know in kind of the vashite way who do you think you're winning over by trying to believe in these conspiracy theories do you really think that the state police had an authority to kill a man da, 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 da. and and just like coming at me and then i look at his page and like it's just all replies uh yeah. of stuff like that just complete misinformation trying to throw a wrench in what the, the left's narratives um and and is this something that you've noticed in peep to, to am i going crazy oh no yeah i mean like why wouldn't that be the case like why wouldn't government or various parts of the bourgeois state use this massive social media platform to advance their agenda or to confuse people or to, you know, get different narratives out there. Like, of course they're doing that. And I think he's yeah. very to think that they wouldn't, you know, yeah. if I was in power, I would, I would do that. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. It's not just like the CIA or the government or whatever, like on, on a lower level, you see like 
I don't know, publicists or like, there was this tweet the other day. It was like four pictures of. Yes. I, I was just about to bring this up. I know what you're about to say. Yeah. Tom Hiddleston. Tom Hiddleston. And it was like, look at that thing he does with his eyebrows. It's so <laughs> yeah. dreamy. Yeah. yeah. yeah and so uh, four pictures of Tom Hiddleston, who's this British actor. He plays Loki in the Avengers movies. And there was like four pictures of him making some weird smug face. And the tweet yeah. was this what he's doing with his face is so personal to me and that was the whole tweet and a a bunch of likes or whatever but somebody quote tweeted it and they were like this is just a publicist putting this out there yeah a hundred percent um and and yeah no it's uh, it's so funny that's so right that's that's what twitter is and like why wouldn't it be used, used that way like there's no you know rule that says you have to use twitter in like a real way or like to have a good faith or honest ideas getting out there like it's for yeah, no. liars bullshitters pe- cynical people bad faith putting you know yeah. their prepackaged nonsense out there and you know lots of idiots on twitter just believe everything they see and so that's it so yeah i think obviously you should you know mm-hmm. very well everything uh, that you see on, on twitter um not just with politics, like even that like low level entertainment media thing is yeah. most important. But like yeah. you know, even more so with politics, of course. Yeah. So Big has time. It the last year? I would say probably, yeah, everything's gotten worse in the last year, man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, everyone's going insane because they've just been trapped inside. Yeah. For um so yeah, uh you are right to think that and it has gotten worse and it will just keep getting worse so sorry um so basically um i i totally agree with what you're saying and i actually do i, I think on top of the COVID and things getting worse for the past year which is 100 percent true i think uh you know it wasn't always done with politics i think there really was this thought among especially maybe the political class i'm sure it was always done to some extent but i think the the the, the mainstream thought was you know what twitter's not real life and then I think after the threat of Bernie in 2016 being way more than they ever thought it was, it, they, they, they reanalyzed that. And it was like, all right, let's take a step back. And I think where it used to be, there was always bad faith on Twitter for sure. And it was sometimes though it was the high paid blue check people who had the six figure gig to be bad faith. Now I think you're seeing people get tossed, you know, lowly numbers, 20K and boom, they're, they're, they're tweeting for a year from their pals doing all this shit. And, um, and behind whatever name um and the only reason we found out about someone like brooklyn dad is because obviously he has his own you know real life persona attached to it most of these guys you know they're just hiding behind some crazy name a bunch of numbers and like an egg emoji um so you really you have no fucking clue who these people are um but but to get off that because i think everyone that even is listening to this is um is aware of all that that's going on and plagued by it um if you have time, do you want to talk about COVID a little bit and that, that tweet I originally DM'd you about? Yeah, sure. All right. So um, you tweeted out basically, and, and I thought this was really insightful because it, it put into words something I haven't been quite able to express, which is basically that a lot of the liberals who are patting themselves, and I'm paraphrasing you here. This isn't exactly what you said, but the liberals who are patting themselves on the back the hardest right now for wearing a mask and you know having someone DoorDash them their food over the past year they are the people who have actually in a lot of ways benefited the most from the suffering of the pandemic um and 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 in a lot of ways are are the direct causes of it 
um, at least politically and, and, and definitely, you know, kind of economically, this kind of the professional class that's been able to work from home and have people Instacart and DoorDash for them while patting themselves on the back and scoffing at everyone else for not, you know, following this regulation and that regulation. Um, I guess, I guess, you know, we should have this on the soundboard, uh, but what do you mean by that? <laughs> uh, well, I've done a tweets about COVID that are kind of related to that, so I'm not sure exactly which tweet you're talking about. But, yeah, in, in general, I think it's, you know, uh, it's been great for the liberal class because, well, they love falling, they love staying inside, um, and they love having these reasons to feel morally superior to other people. Uh, and so, like, you know, I, I live in Brooklyn and, and I don't really wear a mask if I'm outside. If I go inside of a place, I'll wear a mask because you have to. But I'm not, like, wearing a mask on the sidewalk. And I'm one of yeah. the only people like, in my neighborhood who does that, I guess. Um, and so I get a lot of bad looks because, like, you're supposed to wear a mask all the time. Um, and so liberals like it for that reason because they love to feel better about people, um, better than people. And, you know following rules makes them feel very good and if you're not following <laughs> rules then that means you're bad um, yeah so that's a big part of it and yeah they pat themselves on the back for you know um <laughs> so when the thing first started last year like in april and may uh every night at six o'clock everyone would go outside and just mm -hmm. like do you remember hearing about this? Like you're not. Yeah, New York. Everyone would go out on their balconies. Yeah, we're North Carolina based. I grew up in New York till I was like uh, in my teens, okay. and um, and I so I saw social media posts and stuff, and then I think it was just on social media in general. Even you know if I wasn't following anyone, but yeah, everyone would go out on their balconies and clap at six p.m. And and I did see a funny tweet in like August, which is already so long ago. That was like we still have a couple upstairs that goes out and claps every day, but they're the last one. <laughs> It was it was really funny to like walk to like see that happen and then die down in real time because like, yeah I got fascinated by it I would I would always make a point to be outside around six o'clock just to like see the people outside like who are these people clapping and then like as you know May turned into June and then July and August like there were still a few people who would do it but it really died down and so like what was it all about so the idea was that you were clapping for like essential workers for nurses for grocery store workers for i guess uh sanitation workers um because they kept the system going um but like they weren't really around to hear it um so, yeah to me it seemed very obvious that they were just clapping for themselves and that they were you know literally packing patting themselves on the back they were giving themselves a round of applause um and I think that sort of tells you a lot about the, I don't know, whole phenomenon of... I think that's a really good way to put it, that they were basically giving themselves a round of applause. Um, yeah, I think that's that's about that's about right. Um, yeah. And, and I, I guess my take on it, uh, to get a little, you know, Twitter angsty about it, would be that these are the people who not only, like, you know, paid all this lip service to essential worker this, essential worker that, but at the end of the day are, like totally comfortable with um and honestly a lot of these liberals right now just to apply it to current events are totally happy with biden's school reopening push because that means they can get their kids out of their hair everyone can get back to work things can kind of get back to normal and flowing upward again and it, and it's like 
did we ever really did we ever really care about saving each other's lives or was it really kind of about signifying this not only opposition to trump but opposition and uh privilege over these lowly idiots um that you know feel that are you know a believe in trump and and listen to him but but even further than that just like the people below us in general i even heard someone i was i was talking um i don't know i don't want to say who it is i don't want to blow up the spot but someone i know in real life uh said to me this wild shit about like because I was talking about, you know, that we're vaccinating my, my friends trying to get me to go out to bars. And I'm like, yeah. And, and, and immediately pipes up to be like, yeah, well, you know, it's the type of people in the bars. You know, the people going out to bars that have just been spending the year drinking and bullshitting. Those are the people you want to worry about. Go out to a nice restaurant, then you're in the clear. And it's like, and it's like, yeah, just stay away from the dirty, unwashed pores and you'll be safe to not get the plague. It's like, what the yeah. It's like, like, holy shit. Um, Yeah, I think that's literally what it is. It's creating this, like, very clear second class of citizens. Um, But there's some kind of rationalization and, like, technical, medical, you know, uh, justification for it. Because they can't just come out and say, like, we hate poor people because they're ugly and gross and smelly, (laughs) even though that's what it is. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there's medical and scientific, you know, experts tell me that it's okay to think these poor people are gross and smelly. Like that's yeah. that's what. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, and I guess my big worry um, with COVID is just that everyone's just like we're not going to have a real reckoning with it because you know people aren't interested in having a reckoning with it or really. Like, if we really gave a shit about the essential workers, like, uh, you know, a, a 6 p.m. clap would imply, you would think there would be a reckoning with how they were treated and how many died over this pandemic and, and, and what exactly happened. But it seems to me, my big concern is that everyone just wants to get back to fucking. And, uh, <laughs> and that it's just going to be the summer of clapping cheeks and, like, absolutely zero... Uh, resolution to any of the fucking shit in the pandemic um and just because quite frankly no, no one wants to reckon with uh what, what happened and because most people especially the people that you know have the time to worry about any of this kind of were of the class that got to clap at 6 p.m and kind of skated through and it wasn't it was bad it was bad for everyone don't get me wrong but it wasn't they didn't feel the full impact of the pandemic um, and, and I guess what was instructive about your tweet that I wanted to, to say is that it's these people who seem to have suffered the least or benefited the most from the pandemic um, mm-hmm. that that are at the same time acting like they, uh, you know, they've carried this cross and this burden and, and patting mm-hmm. themselves on the back because it's been so hard. But in reality, the, the people they've been judging and the people that they're holding themselves above in this way are, are the right. ones who have really been suffering the most. Yeah, oh, absolutely. So the, you know, lowly, poor people who they look down their noses at, they're the ones who kept everything going. And so they perform this sort of care for those people. But, you know, those are the people who probably aren't getting that or didn't get vaccinated quickly enough or I don't know. Um, And yeah, their lives, the uh, professional class, liberal people, their lives didn't really change too much because they all have good internet connections and, you know, Mac, like the new MacBook pros and they can just work from home and they're watching a lot of Hulu. 
Um, and so their lives not only didn't get worse, it probably got easier and better because they didn't have to, you know, waste money commuting or whatever. Um, and those kinds of people probably didn't like going out much to begin with, other than like going to, you know, bistros and gastropubs and whatever. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I don't think their lives, their lives either didn't change much or got better. Um, and they act like it was this big traumatic thing for them, I guess. But it really wasn't. Yeah. And it's, it's incredibly performative, like most things with those people. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, in terms of like, will there be a reckoning with it? I think you're right that everyone just wants to, you know, get back, like, fuck and party and get outside and whatever. Um, Which I'm not knocking, like, fucking party, you know? Yeah, but maybe, you know, on, like, the third line of coke, have some thoughts about the situation we're in. Um, (laughs) It would be, that would be nice. That would be nice. But I don't know, it's almost, like, too big to be thought about. Like, almost like 9-11 was too big to make sense of. And, like, in retrospect, obviously, Bush and Israel did it. Um, <laughs> but it was, like, too much to reckon with that at the time. And, like, now, like, this is kind of too big to understand. So no one really wants to grapple with it. We just want to kind of plow ahead and mm-hmm. fuck and get drunk and whatever. Um, but, yeah, we're not really realizing that the world is permanently changed and we're kind of rushing headfirst into it. And so like COVID passports are a thing now. Yeah. That like, you're going to have to show that you uh, got vaccinated. Mm-hmm. If you want to get anywhere, if you want to like go into a fucking store or a business or your job or whatever. Um, and I, I got your COVID passport right here, pal. It's a two, two, three and the constitution. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's going to go over well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's what I'm thinking of. People don't really care about that because, I don't know, they're looking to, like you said, get have it be a summer of clapping cheeks, which I get, but... Um, we need we need to clap more than cheeks. There's, there's a lot of clapping that needs to be done. A lot of people need to get clapped. And uh, it's... Unfortunate. <laughs> Bunch of people need to um, know that. <laughs> that that and and isn't that the truth? Um, <laughs> that might be a good place to leave it. I don't want to take up too much of your time. <laughs> uh yeah, this was great, man. Yeah, if for sure. Talk about like with the protest or whatever. Like I, I know you were. Yeah. Um. I. I mean, if you got time, and I'd love to keep this is a great conversation. I'd love to keep it going. Yeah. Sure. All right. Um, so yeah, we started this just to give you a little background on us. We started this podcast. We're both not super. And I loved what you said about, you know, to be a Marxist. We're, we like to think that we're pretty accessible dudes. I don't think I'm a genius. I don't think my co-host is a genius. I think we're just like normal guys who really, I, I, I was more political than my co-host, but neither of us were super, super political before 2020. Um, I got involved with volunteering for Bernie kind of at the last minute i had been kicking in money before then and like i had followed it in 2016 i went to a bernie rally in 2015 loved what he had to say um and you know my family went through shit in 2008 a lot of it resonated with me so i just i was on his side but like i voted for clinton in 2016 um and you know to stop fascist donald trump and 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 i had my worries about (laughs) donald trump what's that i'm hanging up now (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. So like, I I was really not uh too too, but I saw I had all these worries about Trump, and I saw how people failed to kind of respond to um this shit. And I even I got in uh, this huge brawl with Nazis like about a year after Trump got in, and I, I still have back issues from it. So I feel like with the the conclusion everyone's come to recently, especially with one six. I was a little uh, ahead of and just a little a little ahead of to just, just realizing the real threat and that it existed there. And so when the George Floyd protests hit, we were about to start a music podcast. We both work in the hip hop industry. We, we run a studio. But then when I'd come over, we'd just like start talking about politics incessantly. And, and I'd gone to protests and really seen how they went one way. And then the media would portray them having gone a completely other way. And I saw the cop of reaction, just how no one was talking about this shit. And like, I listened to like, come town, which then made me listen to Chapo trap house. But that was like my full involvement with like leftist politics up until actually getting involved in 2020, um, in, in rural North Carolina. And then now that's completely, so we're, a lot of what we do is like, we're pretty new to the, the entire whole scene and just trying to survey it and come into it with somewhat of a fresh perspective. We like to think a good amount of our audience is like from like kind of kids from the hip hop community that aren't exactly like fully into politics, but I'm um, trying to, cause I'm in this discord with a bunch of kids um, with that, like this guy who runs this uh, streetwear brand that I, I do some copywriting for. And all these kids that are streetwear kids, anti-authority, fuck this, this, and that, uh, would have been punks when punk was a thing. They all, like, are on YouTube watching Ben Shapiro, Candace Owens, Jordan Peterson, because that's, like, what gets funneled to them. And so we've tried to kind of do this podcast as trying to do kind of that sort of content, but that is showing the reality of the protest, talking about the movement in the right way, and um, just trying to trying to actually give a voice to people in the streets. And, and we've had um, an activist on before, but we're trying to get a little better about that. I, um, I'm just trying not to blow up the spot of where I actually organize and, and have people on, um, but I'm moving away soon. And then I think at that point, I'm going to be able to really boost kind of some of the, some of the people I've met through in-person organizing. But it's really some of the stuff we've talked about. Um, it started off, let's just report the protest and what's going on. And we really quickly learned that not only was the media lying about it and just reprinting cop narratives, but it seemed like they were building counter narratives um, and, and actually trying to like really work against them, actively work against the movement. And then what became a worry is we saw how vo the violent backlash from like the right wingers and we saw how the media basically, I kind of remember like, I think a radicalizing moment for me, and you'll laugh at this as someone who's been around longer was when Richard Spencer got punched. Um, that I, I hadn't really thought about political violence up until that point. That was not really something on my radar. But obviously, I was really mad about everything going on, and I was thrilled to see that this Richard Spencer guy who I knew was a Nazi got hit. So then when I saw, like, liberal journalists for the first time kind of like, should we really punch Nazis? that threw me into like, whoa, we should really punch not like you get what I'm saying. <laughs> like, and, um, and it, it, it really, um, so I just as people who are new to this scene, though, some of our, some of our takes are basically that 
you know, right now on the left, you have a whole bunch of people that, and, and you talked about this, that want to feel smart, um, but don't really want to actually do the organizing. And I think it's easy to get caught up because online isn't really real life. I know a lot of leftists in real life that are super into the organizing, but a lot of those people in real life, they don't, aren't really like super like leftist or like even political, or at least they don't espouse it that publicly. It's, it's kind of more just like common sense people. It's not really these like terminally online, I'm a leftist, like, you know, I have all this theory and stuff. What's kind of your take about the left uh, kind of swinging more into action and actually doing things, especially right now when we like basically have no power, you know, and it really seems like we're, we're on our back. Yeah, well, there's one thing you said uh, about how a lot of like the radical people that like younger people that you interact with, they watch YouTube and they're just funneled into like Ben Shapiro and Jordan Peterson and like, right. And like Tim pool, I guess would be in that. Yeah. Category. Tim pool and like louder with Crowder and like shit like that. Yeah. And, and that's a very like interesting, but under examined thing. I think like if you just, I don't know, watch like a video game review on YouTube, that's not political at all. You'll have like Ben Shapiro and mm -hmm. all of these right wingers in your recommendations for yep. like weeks and months afterwards. So it's like impossible to get away from that. Even if you aren't interested in politics or right wing stuff at all, it's just like that's how the YouTube algorithms function. So yep. it's very, very weird. And it's just sort of getting more intense that way. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, the uh, in terms of the narrative, so you notice that the media was kind of uh, portraying the pro the protests um, in a way that was different from how they actually were. And so this, so like a little bit of my history, I guess, um, I was, I don't know, kind of like an anti-woke leftist for a while. Yeah, um, I think you still are. You're the resident oh. expert on Jewish pussy and... <laughs> oh, oh boy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> yeah. But the got a man turning to Jesus. Uh, <laughs> but, water to wine. Yeah. Um, so, what was it? <laughs> what was it? <laughs> uh, so, anti-woke left. Yeah, I mean, okay. So, around the time of the protests, I saw all of these kind of anti-woke leftist people that I was interacting with and close with online. Um saying like oh it's just white people at the protests and yeah bourgeois identity politics at the protest yep. and it's not going to change anything it's performance it's just catharsis it's and like there was this narrative that the corporations and the were pro protest which i don't think was really true yeah right and that joe biden and kamala harris were supporting defund the police and all of this and that if you were going along with defunding the police or the protests or whatever, then you were just like part of the DNC. That was sort of a accusation that came up. Um, and to me, that seemed like such small minded shit. Um, yeah. Because like, obviously corporations are going to tweet out hashtag BLM because that's like, a, you know, there was this mass uprising going on. So they were going to try to piggyback off of it. It doesn't mean that they were like orchestrating it. Um, yeah, if, if anything, they're trying to co-opt it and, you know, ease some of the anger towards them, you know, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so that seemed very obvious to me. But there was this very big 
contingent of people and i guess it's just online but i don't think it is just online of people it's not who, yeah of people who are saying like oh these people are all these people in the streets are all just i don't know like yuppie karens they're wine moms they're all privileged white bros yeah that's really yeah and, and i mean you and that narrative was built strong and and i really do believe that those talking points are kind of fed you know the coke bro a lot of the big talk talking heads in this media sphere are astroturfed and funded by the Koch brothers and people like that. I think they get talking points like that. And it's so funny, it kind of just organically gets regurgitated through this whole machine. And it becomes like, basically like it's fact, because everyone's saying it. Um, and it, yeah. about, you know, the protests were just like upper middle class white people going to feel good about themselves. And that's all that it was. Yeah, so Koch brothers, maybe. But it's like like the new version of that is Peter Thiel. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, and so he um, he funds some of those kind of talking points and some like Michael Tracy, those kinds of people on Twitter. Yeah, uh, yeah. And his whole form of journalism is like was just to go to the protests last summer, and like he would take a picture, and there would be like seven white people there. And he'd be like, this is supposed to be Black Lives Matter, but here are some white people. Yep, yep, yep. Michael Tracy was big on that beat. We actually covered him extensively. Um, we, we called him Fat Goebbels, and we <laughs> we we talked about how he basically copied Andy No's grift and kind of did a version of it for the centrists, you know? Andy No light. Um, and, yeah. yeah. And that's, that's very easy to do because you just, you know— like obviously it's any protest any riot any time people are in the streets doing shit there's going to be weirdos and there's going to be absurd shit and it's not always going to be focused or well directed or whatever so you can go and find some bullshit to make fun of mm -hmm. as the totality mm -hmm. of it. and so it's very cheap and easy and it gets a lot of engagement online because people are just looking for shit that you know undermines any kind of progress or that reinforces their own sort of yeah. hesitant, uh, you know. And I think subconsciously white supremacist white folks do, are incredibly threatened by white people that would want to ally with the blacks. That's like horrifying to them. That's oh, yeah. like unthinkable. Yeah. Right. Because that's how racism actually ends. Like with white people acknowledging it and talking about it. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't like, we usually think that like it's black people's problem like oh race i'll just let black people handle it like that's their deal but like no we like we're the racists <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't black people yeah yeah no 100 percent. yeah reduce it white people have to start treating it like it's a real problem um yeah. and this gets and obviously this is correct but this gets difficult because like these horrible liberals sort of go down this road like uh mm -hmm. that that white fragility book, Robin yep. D'Angelo, I think wrote it. Robin D'Angelo, obviously. Um, and uh, how to be anti-racist? That Ibram Kendi guy. I haven't read these books, but my idea is that they're just sort of liberal propaganda. Um, mm -hmm. And so they take sort of a grain of truth, and they, I don't know, water it down, or they make it really shitty and gay. They stretch it to its its worst end. They really just take it and it becomes and, and and I almost think to the extent that it is liberal propaganda, it is to turn people off 
from the, the mission, or at least in practice, that that's what it does. But I, I worry, and an even scarier thought is that people like Robin D'Angelo, it's not even like, it's not even planned propaganda. Like she's just someone who has discovered a great grift and has been incentivized to just kind of like make rich professionals feel guilty and then get paid, you know, for these $40,000 seminars. Cause she's someone that goes in and does these diversity trainings. So she's someone who's just in this, you know, multi-million, maybe billion dollar industry of diversity trainings, which we've talked about on this podcast are sometimes used to keep people from unionizing. Um, so like it's yeah uh so just i mean and yeah and i guess uh it's difficult because i think even people like her and that go the the woke way with it not the anti-woke way with it like with michael tracy also do the white people thing where it's like why it's not white people's place to be like when the protests first started the cia talking point you'd see all over instagram was like white people need to settle down right now this is not, stop trying to put yourself front and center. Stop trying to make this about you. Which, like, there was some truth to, like, don't show up to a protest to take a photo for your Instagram. But, like, you, please go front and center and take a rubber bullet. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it's like, yeah, that's, that's very weird. And with the Robin D'Angelo thing, I think you're right that on some level it is a cynical grift. And she knows that she's, you know, got this million dollar gig that can just keep going with these bullshit seminars but she also thinks that she's like really helping the world and so it's like on these two levels where it's very cynical but she also thinks that she's a saint and yeah. so that seems really bad and like impossible and i think how you get there which is something we've talked about on this pod and like you're maybe one of the only guys smart enough to help me unpack this but <laughs> it's that in this quest to, to be smart and to work within the system, because you've accepted that violent opposition to the system is either immoral or impossible. So in the confines of this system that has violently dug its heels in on the oppression of black people, for example, but a lot of different groups, but especially black people, and, and especially in America, that's a lot of where the oppression's focused. But since they've dug their heels in violently, they've fully internalized that. So instead, how they try to accomplish uh, moving against it or working against it is to reason with it, is to is to kind of, like you're saying, she probably really thinks she's helping the world, but not because there's not something better she could be doing or something better or something more you could be doing to uplift the races, but that this is the best she could do in this system. So I'm going to try to get as much money from these companies to do my anti-racism, and I'm going to operate. And in this capitalist framework that I think sometimes even socialists or so-called Marxists try to operate under, you fall into this trap. And, and I'd be interested to get your thoughts on that or to, to help me you know, word them better. Yeah, no, that's a very good point that, um, you know, it's, it's safe. It's funneling revolutionary sentiment into this very safe sort of centrist middle class directions um so yeah it's getting us to change the way we talk in like corporate offices with these diversity training seminars like so that we don't go out on the streets yes um, and so i think that's why they're forcing this kind of you know uh awareness raising seminar thing that's sweeping the country uh in in workplaces precisely so that something like last summer doesn't happen again because like the bourgeois liberal state did not let it happen last summer 
um there's this narrative that like oh joe biden loved this and supported it no he didn't at all he didn't support defund the police or the riots or any of that shit like they would Mm. much rather have robin d'angelo you know lecture at your office about yes language they in fact i think actively want that stuff because it really works against kind of uh class solidarity and i think and and i think that's and i think sometimes to talk and maybe this is really where we should focus because i think you can really speak to this the anti-woke left where they get misled is that yes the neoliberals and the capitalist class are using this stuff to bad ends and that's why it's egregious and that's why we should disagree with it but not because it's not true like it's racism is real but it's the way Robin D'Angelo and Joe Biden are trying to fight it. And to use that real thing to actually further divide us and make it worse, that's what makes it bad. And I feel like it's just, it's, it, it's sometimes, it's complicated. And it's easy to just be resentful to these people who just want to like, oh, you, you don't, you, you, you said that, you don't use this language, you got to da 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 Like, you know, people don't like to be scolded. I think that's just really, right. it, it's a little simpler than I'm trying to over-intellectualize it. But I do think yep. there's some truth to all that. Yeah, it's it's hard because there is this tendency with the anti-woke left or whatever you want to call it to like totally turn their brains off whenever the issue of race comes up and just be like, oh, that's a bourgeois distraction. Uh, we should be focused on the labor relation only. Um, and so a lot of the arguments that I would have with those people was like, you know, they would say basically that like it should be workers lives matter and that there should be just masses of labor unions in the streets and just like workers out there as workers and then that would be worth supporting but since last summer wasn't that it's a distraction and it's bourgeois and it's you know uh yeah i actually think it was great that it was unemployed people looting fucking target during a pandemic where everyone lost their jobs like that was better than (laughs) yeah Uh, and there was an economic element to it like so and 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 the media i think purposefully erased that element to it and in order yeah uh, like and and that was really insidious because i don't think and and i guess and i think just not to not to run over on what you're saying but the the real point to make against what those guys are saying is that you this was the closest we ever got to being in the streets and fighting the system was black people standing up against their oppression like good luck with that worker thing but i think this is probably yeah yeah like there's not going to be like a labor relation based bark that gets people out in the street like what would that be like with yeah. race erica like that does happen because it's such yeah. a combustible thing and there's such a tradition of it and it's so close to the surface you know yeah. like it's very deep in our history but it's also extremely close to the surface so it's both of those things at once and i feel like that's sort of the essence of i don't know revolutionary possibility something with very yeah. roots which and it's just black and it's black and white yeah it's it's just there's truths yeah. to it and yeah it's just yeah yeah and so you know there was an economic aspect to last summer um it was it was and still is the although i guess it's getting better now by like the worst the economic crisis since the great depression and so that's a big part of the reason why everyone was out in the streets like yes it was because of the racial injustice um but it was because people had real economic problems and so they were fucking losing it um and they weren't like and so they couldn't protest in their capacity as workers because they all lost their fucking jobs like millions of people lost their jobs last year um and even before last year 
the whole idea of labor was very vague. Like, you know, people are temp workers, they're gig workers, they're, uh, it's like the labor relation isn't as well defined as it used to be. So it's going to be hard to have like mass labor uh, action in the streets, even though that mm-hmm. would be the best thing for, I don't know, Marxist revolution. Um, mm-hmm. I think, I think what you'll see though is, um, and to kind of synthesize what you've said with what some of our previous guests have said, like Ryan Cooper, where it's he's really focused on kind of the labor stuff and building that, I think is that you have a synthesis of these things where like, you look at what just happened in Bessemer, Alabama, right? With the with the unionizing of that Amazon warehouse and rumor on the street is that the vote went through. It's not confirmed yet, but that's like what the rumor on the street is. Um, well, by the time this podcast is out, I'm sure there'll be a definitive answer. We can maybe edit it in, but that I almost think is a direct consequence of the same issues that led to the protest this summer. And then even seeing like that warehouse is majority black. That is a majority black warehouse. So I think you look at that and you look at this summer, you don't get to a place where people are really now, all right, I'm in opposition to Amazon. I know who my enemies are without the summer protest movement. And I think as you embolden and support these grassroots actions on the issues of race, you then naturally get one because people then are looking at power and they're looking at what they can do to stand against it. You get people unionizing. You get the natural outgrowth of that because labor is where the power is and people want to use the power. But you have to have, and, but I think, and I think race and labor shouldn't even be looked at as different things. It's all, it's all one struggle, baby. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, but, you know, since the majority of workers in that warehouse uh, were black, that means that it was just identity politics. So Yeah, exactly. And that's what's so that's what's so worrisome to me. I think about the anti-woke stuff. It's like it's like because they're right. I think I I'm to some most people on the left. I would probably be considered anti-woke leftist to the anti-woke leftists. I'm like a cuck crybaby. Um, and yeah, yeah and, and it's it's this real dilemma because the, I think the truth really is somewhere in the middle there. I think, yeah. you know, yeah. And yet you are like kind of the common sense position where you're not like buying into the bullshit on either side. But if you want to, I don't know, fit into the online discourse or like build a brand or whatever, you have to kind of be a dumbass in either direction. Even though yeah. No, it's true. Um, and, and we're we're trying with this pod, and I think we've done an all right job of building up a listenership that's kind of anti the bullshit um, and 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 that wants a third way. Um, and but it's hard, I because I, I think it, you know there's a reason why that shit sells. Um, oh yeah, uh, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, and the the easiest shit always does the best. Like you know all of those uh, people on Twitter who are just like. I don't know. We need to return to like tradition and community and liberal alienation is making everyone sad. Like that, those kinds of takes, like it mm-hmm. always, they always get very popular because yeah. it's like the most low level basic shit. Um, I don't know. But I think there's a place for the low level stuff sometimes though. Like I look at Orion Knight and he gets criticized sometimes for basically being the equivalent of like a 17 year old leftist with some of his tweets. And like, I think that's a fair criticism. I think a lot of his stuff is like surface level scratches the surface. Um, like, and, and like just sort of the process of becoming a leftist and like, I'm figuring it out. And like, I'm like, is that his thing? Like, uh, like, yeah, I'm- it is. Yeah, it, it definitely was. Cause I think he was 
he like volunteered for Warren at some point and then left. Yeah. Um, and, and hilariously, actually, one of the Warren staffers tried to come after him a couple of days ago and was like, he he left Warren because we wouldn't leave good reviews on his podcast. And then she had a gif of AOC rolling her eyes and was like, me when a white man talks about his podcast. Um, but then Ryan Knight popped up with screenshots of her being like, could you please wait until after Super Tuesday to endorse Bernie? We worked so hard for war and then you're shitting on all of our work. And so she was just mad that he endorsed Bernie with his, uh, you know, however big platform on Twitter. But, you know, you know to, to, I think there's a place for guys like him to show, because like we were even talking earlier, there needs to be a place like Marxism isn't for geniuses. It, it should be for everyone. There needs to be a place for just the lukewarm kind of bullshit take. I think when it becomes concerning is like when you just, when that surface level shit allows you to fall into these media narratives that we're talking about that are put there to corrode the movement. Like, and I, and I love that you talked about the, the white people being in the protest one. Cause we started this whole podcast and called it inside agitator. Cause it was like a joke about me being called an outside agitator. And we, I feel like we haven't really talked about that line of attack enough, but it really was, I think one of the main things that you still hear even from people that aren't terminally online is that, yeah, it's just like rich white kids that are, you know, are, you know, what you leave, it's the, it's the ant Facebook post things. These kids need to get a good spanking, <laughs> you know, like right. that's really, that's kind of the yeah. take. There's this idea that racism like was just invented recently by corporations and like only white people care about it or whatever and like ignores the deep roots and like the materialist structural like foundations of racism as you know a precondition of the american experience um and yes. so i think how it should be talked about and so like you know uh i think black people live on average three or four years less long than white people in america like there's a big difference in lifespan between yeah. white and america i just read a crazy stat that um a black baby is three times more likely to die under a white doctor's care yeah exactly there's all kinds of medical statistics about that and, and then you can get and, and so that's the most important like how long you live is the most important thing and then mm -hmm. you can get a, a wealth gap and education gap and on and on um and so the question is why is there that difference where does that difference come from it doesn't come from the sky and it doesn't come from inherent biological differences between the races. That would be what racism actually is. If you explained these differences in like lifespan and wealth and education in terms of like, well, certain races have just different genetics. That's racism. Mm -hmm. uh, the actual um, explanation for it is materialist. It's that these uh, differences are the byproducts of, um different economic and class positions in american history for hundreds of years um and so it's very much and so you know the you know what's interesting i have i want to ask you a question would you then consider i i love that explanation of racism would you then consider the meritocracy racist uh yeah it's definitely classist um, yeah you know it's all like people who can afford to go to private schools and get like really good tutors for their SATs and who have like the time and energy to do after school clubs because they don't have to work yeah. after jobs. They get into the best schools and then they, you know, 
pass that off as merit. So yeah, merit is just like a class. Because I'd really say, yeah, sure, on the alt-right, you might have uh, people who racistly look at black people living less long and say, oh, that's because of their genetic disposition. But I think on the left, you have people who look at that and go, oh, well, they didn't work hard enough on a per on a personal individual level. It's not about their race. Them as a person just didn't overcome yeah. these things. Yeah. I, I, yeah. yeah. No, I, I think that's true that we see. Mer merit is, is the replacement for genetics. Yes. Merit is like the liberal, uh, I don't know, cheat code or roundabout way to be as racist as a right winger. But yeah, you know, yeah. With like technical, rational kind of yeah. way. And, and and that actually really helped me conceptualize something we, we talked about on a way earlier episode when Joe Biden was talking about the Black Lives Matter uh, protest this summer during the campaign. And he said something along the lines of, or maybe it was his acceptance speech when he got the nomination. I don't know. It was, it was from earlier this year. But he, he said something along the lines of, every black person should should be able to achieve in this country to the best of their God-given ability. That was right. the, the asterisk he put on the end of it. Um, to the best of their God-given ability, and and it and I've had trouble explaining how that's still racist, but I think I think you just helped me. Yeah, yeah. So if they don't achieve, so let's say Biden puts those plans out there that do that, and if Black people still aren't achieving the same level as White people, then that's on them. Yep. Yeah. And so yeah. that just gets you into the same place as like racist right wingers, but with a good conscience. Yeah. 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 And, and so, that's the key, feeling good about yourself. Yeah. And so that's really what these liberals are all about. It's, you know, just it's the same kind of hierarchy and inequality and suffering for the mass of people. But they, you know, have these plans and these metrics and these systems with all kinds of smart stuff involved in it. And it gives them a clean conscience. They can be like, oh, well, we did everything we could and we gave people opportunities and blah, 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 blah. So if, you know, if you're still fucked, then that's just on you, fucker. You know? Yep. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Spot on. Um, my co-host here. What's your take on all that? I'd love to. I'd love to hear what you're thinking. You're awfully quiet over there. I, I know that normally means that your shit's getting blown. Yeah. No. I'm just sitting here listening. I think you guys really are hitting the nail on the head when you say all this. I mean, whenever I look in my life and uh, some of, some of the white liberals that I come encounter with, I think those are the same themes are uh, really portrayed. I guess. Yeah, yeah, and even in the workplace, it's like yeah, you know, definitely yeah, in the workplace, yeah. I, I see that a lot. You know, yeah, the, for the, sure. The especially, I don't, I don't know. After George Floyd happened, I felt like, um, every, when it, when people came up to me and they were talking about it, they were like, "Oh yeah," or they were they would try to be very nice about it. But then, like later on, when I hear other conversations about race, it'd be something completely different, or like some other take that kind of demonizes black people, or this, that, and the third. So like. I mean, even though it's not exactly it, what we're what we're talking about, but uh, no, it is yeah. though because I think it's it's portraying like, yeah, I'm so for like it, I, it, I'm it, with you, brother. I'm, yeah, I'm right I'll, here. Yeah, I'm solidarity. right here. And I, and I slap on the back and like, yep, I'll wear my Kente cloth and kneel. But at the end of the day, if you don't jump through these hoops, sorry, Buster. Exactly, you have to be. It's yeah. the respectability politics. Yeah, yeah, and respectability politics is, is definitely the word uh, for sure for a lot of this shit. Yeah, and it's interesting that you use the phrase white liberals because that's that's what Mel Malcolm X talked about 50 years ago. He was warning about white liberals and how we shouldn't trust them. They claim to make things better, but, you know, 
they really just make things worse. They'll and go to the water cooler and say some fucked up shit about the pretty well, I don't like how the protests are affecting small businesses. Exactly. Yeah. And how in some ways, like the openly racist white people are preferable because you at least know where you stand with them. Mm -hmm. But with the white liberals, you're always trying to figure out their, you know, tricks and deceptions and whatever. Um, yeah. Well, this was an incredibly informative conversation, man. This was awesome. Thank you so much yeah. for coming on. Really? Yeah, Thanks thank for having me. Yeah. Um, you're welcome to come on anytime. Just DM us for real. Um, and uh, if you guys liked what you heard, go check out the Daily Dialectic and support our boy here because his work is it's really awesome. I'm a huge fan. Oh, well, thank you, man. Appreciate that. All right. Well, uh, thank you, guys. That's this episode. We'll talk to you next week. See y'all. All right. Good stuff. Hey, man, that was sick. Thanks so much. Awesome yeah, that was really fun. Wow, it was really easy to talk to you guys. Thank Good. You. I'm glad. We we get that, and I'm I'm glad because that's really the only vibe we want to put out is that like we're easy to, like please come on and just just bullshit like we want to we want to hear everything like yeah I haven't done too many podcast interviews so you know I was a little nervous or whatever but it was very easy to chill with you guys hell yeah so, good stuff man definitely come back on if you liked it we we'd love to have you back on definitely.